Hey guys, welcome back to Smoldering Wicks. Sorry I haven't posted lately. Um, work's just been really busy and really tiring as well. Um, but don't worry. The summer series in Psalm 107, we are going to finish that. Um, it just won't be a summer series anymore. It will be a regular exegetical series. So we're going to finish all the content from Psalm 107 in the coming semester. Um, this, this summer was way too packed, and I overloaded my schedule. So sorry about that, but don't worry. We're going to finish that. As far as what I've been doing, um, I've been helping out at my home church, and I've been working as well. And so this is a message I delivered last Friday. I'm going to deliver another one this Friday before heading back to Michigan. So um, I hope you enjoy. I hope the Lord blesses your heart with this message, and there's going to be another one in the coming weeks as well. So, hey, Smoldering Wicks is still alive, um, and I hope to see you all real soon. Thanks, guys. Uh, a couple things before we begin. Um, I'm Kevin Fan. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan, um, so I'm still in college, but over the summer I come back and I spend time with you guys. That's what I love to do, so um, it's good to be back, although I'm going to leave in two weeks anyway, um, which kind of sucks, but actually, no, next Saturday I'm leaving. Um, but yeah, uh, most of y'all know me, but if you don't know me, that's who I am. I'm Kevin Fan. There's lots of Kevins at this church, uh, but I'm Kevin Fan. Um, so also, uh, before we begin, a couple more things. First, um, I'm going to need your eyes and I'm going to need your ears tonight. Um, the reason why is because I know I'm going to talk for a long time, um, but please, please do your best to hear me out, okay? Um, the reason why I want you to hear me out is because... Ultimately, like, I'm here for you guys. Angela and Sam and all the youth coworkers are here for you guys. Like, we give our Fridays up for you. Um, and that's because we care about you guys. And we want you guys to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to follow Jesus. Um, and so that's ultimately what I'm going to be after the next two weeks. That's what I'm going to be about when I talk to you guys. Okay? Um, and along the way, I might say some things that are going to be challenging for you. Um, some things may be hard to hear. Some things uh, might make you unhappy, even. Um, so please understand that like, if I do, I'm not doing it out of malice. I'm not doing it out of hatred for you. I'm not doing it out of ill will, but I'm doing it because I'm here for your joy. I'm here for your joy. And joy is different than happiness, okay? Because um, joy is, true joy is found in Jesus. And so I'm not afraid to say um, hard things. I guess. So, hey, if I say anything that really jostles you tonight, um, you know, like, forgive me and wrestle with it, okay? Don't just tune me out. Actually wrestle with it. Um, this week, we're launching our new theme of gospel fluency, like Angela said. Um, we're going to do that for this coming semester. So from now through the end of the year, um, this will be, like, the main concept that we keep going back to. Um, so... Two things kind of need to be answered right off the bat, all right? Um, the first question that needs to be answered is, what is the gospel? Because we're talking about gospel fluency, right? So the first question that we kind of need to answer is, what's the gospel? Um, the gospel is the good news. More specifically, it's the good news about Jesus. And the gospel is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he you know, made everything for his glory, and he made humans in his image. Um, that means we're meant to reflect his character. 
And our days are supposed to be spent for his glory. And our eyes are meant to see his beauty. And our hearts are made to know him and to love him and to find our joy in him. And our lips, our lips are fashioned to praise him. And our hands and our feet are made to do his will. And this is good news. This is good news because it means that our lives actually matter. It means that they count for something. And we have a purpose on this earth. And we have a creator who loves us and wants the best for us. But the bad news is, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, humans have rejected God. Humans have disobeyed God. Humans have become his enemies instead of his friends. We're made to be his friends, but we've made ourselves his enemies. And we try to find joy and meaning outside of who God is. And we live life on our own terms. And we use the very breath he gave us, the very breath that was meant to praise him and to, and to, and to speak life. Um, instead, we curse him and we curse each other. And you can sum all that up by saying that we sin. I'm sure you guys have heard of sin before. Sin is something that goes much deeper than what we do or don't do. Okay, I want you guys to know that sin goes much deeper than that. It's a condition that affects us to the very core of who we are. So it's not just about actions. It's about your heart. It's about your mind. It's about your very being is affected by sin. And we're sinners by nature, who we are, and we're sinners by trade. That's what we do. Sinners by nature and sinners by trade. We are bad. And this is bad news because God is good. You know how you often hear like, oh, God is good. You hear like all the time, all the time, God is good. But God is good and we're bad and that's bad news for us because a good God is holy and perfect and righteous and he's a just judge. And a good God is not going to let sin go unpunished. And so he's a consuming fire and we're wretched, we're hell-deserving sinners who stand no chance at saving ourselves. All right, there's nothing we can do. But in the middle of that, like, like, while we could do nothing to save ourselves, this is where some amazing news comes in. It's that God loves sinners. He's not just holy and righteous and just. He loves. He's a God of love. He loves sinners. And he sent his one and only son. Kind of like that, that, that song we just sang. He sent Jesus, right? He sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, into the world to save sinners. So he loves sinners. He sent Jesus to save sinners. And this is how Jesus saves us. We're born sinners, but he was born of a virgin without sin. We've spent our whole lives sinning against God, but Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God. Our good works are tainted with sin, but Jesus performed the only work that could ever save sinners like us at the cross where he bled for us and he died for us. So our, our works can't save us. Jesus' work can. And at the cross, he took all the sins of his people and he paid for them in full. He suffered the punishment that we, de- that, that, that we deserved on our behalf. And he gave his life for ours. He took our sins and gave us his righteousness in return. And he exchanged life for death, righteousness for sin. And the righteousness he gives us is a perfect righteousness that's acceptable to God. And three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and the grave. And he rose to secure eternal life with God for everyone who believes in him. And he ascended into heaven. He reigns 
now as king of kings and lord of lords in heaven on behalf of his people. And he calls all to repent and believe in the gospel. He calls all to repent and believe until he comes again to put an end to sin, to set everything right, and to dwell with his people forever in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the gospel, guys. The gospel is that God saves sinners and gathers them to himself as his people. Now, if I've already lost you, um, this is your chance to like really focus in, okay? Focus in and start listening again because I want you to hear these two encouragements from me. First, if this gospel message doesn't make that much sense to you or if it makes no sense at all, hey, like all the adult coworkers and I, we want to talk to you and we want to take the time to explain more and to answer all of your questions, okay? So that's what we're here for. It's okay if things don't click right away. We've got a whole semester of gospel fluency, guys. But second, the second encouragement, and this sounds like a horrible encouragement. I promise you it's not. Um, Please reach out if you're confused, guys. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's not okay. It's not okay that we can go to church and then leave without understanding the gospel. This is a matter of eternal significance and importance. And I want to say to you, hey, second encouragement, today is the day to repent of your sins, put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and begin following him because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So please ask, guys, if this doesn't make sense to you, please ask, please reach out, do everything you can. We'd love to talk to you. That's why we're here on Fridays, okay? We'd love to talk to you because there's no more urgent thing in this world than to put your trust in Jesus. So that's the gospel. What's gospel fluency? That's the second question. What's gospel fluency? Okay? Gospel fluency is the ability to understand how the truth of the gospel affects and changes every part of our lives, okay? It's about applying the gospel to every situation we have. And no matter what cultural issue or personal struggle that we encounter, the gospel is able to speak life into it and and reorient the way we see things and the way we see life. It's going to reorient all of these issues and all of these situations around the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. Um, This is something that my discipler back in Michigan loves to tell me all the time. But the gospel is like a diamond. You ever seen a diamond? A diamond um, is beautiful. It's the most beautiful gem in all the world. And when an expert jeweler cuts a diamond, he pays special attention to the facets and how they're arranged. A facet of a diamond is a flat surface that it's arranged together with other facets in this geometrical pattern in a diamond, okay? And so these facets, they interact with each other and they interact with the light to to really give off this classic like diamond sparkle, right? Ever seen a diamond sparkle? The The faces of a diamond are gonna interact with each other and they're gonna give off this beautiful, beautiful sparkle in the light. But as beautiful as it is to see, you know, a beam of light shining onto a diamond, it's only when we hold up the diamond in the light And we turn it, we turn the diamond, and we see its true beauty there. Because when we turn the diamond, every angle, every facet catches in the light, and we see the light dance. We see the light dance. And in the same way, like a diamond with many facets, the gospel has many different sides that point back to one truth. Okay, the truth is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but has many different sides to it. 
And so when we look at it from multiple angles, when we consider how the gospel impacts every area of our lives, only then do we see the true beauty of it. So let me give an example, okay? Um, Let's say someone only looks at the gospel from the lens of reconciliation and peace with God. For those of you who who don't know what that means, it means that through Jesus's life and death and resurrections, I am not God's enemy anymore. I'm his friend. Jesus makes me God's friend because of what he does. That's what reconciliation is. And so there's no more conflict with God anymore because Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he made a way for us to have a relationship with God. And this is an amazing truth. It's amazing that the God of the universe, Jesus, came to this earth and and, and saved me and he called me his friend. And that's, that's so beautiful. But if that's the only... That's the only lens from which I look at the gospel, then what I'm doing is I'm holding the diamond in the light, but I'm not turning it. And I'm missing out on so much beauty and life-changing truth if I do that because the gospel isn't only about reconciliation and peace. It's also about substitution and the satisfaction of God's wrath. That Jesus on the cross died in my place for my sins, drinking the cup of the wrath of God on my behalf down to the very last drop. Isaiah 53, 5 says, For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. But it's also about a great exchange. It's about a great exchange. And the great exchange is where Jesus, he doesn't just take my sins, but he also gives me this perfect righteousness that, that, that makes me perfect and acceptable before God. You ever thought about that? Jesus doesn't just take your sins. He also gives you something. He gives you a perfect righteousness that makes you acceptable to him. Makes you precious and perfect in his eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it's not just about that either. It's about ransom. That Jesus pays the debt of sin that I owe a debt that I can't repay, and he nails it to the cross. And it's about restoration that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, I have a new life. I'm a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But it's not just about those things either. It's about adoption. It's about adoption as well, where we're not just God's friends, but we're adopted into his family as beloved children, sons and daughters, with an inheritance that lasts forever. And it's important to note that all all these benefits and the effects of the gospel aren't limited to these either. I could go all all day. But these benefits actually spill over into every aspect of our lives, every struggle we have, every cultural issue we currently face. So yes, our schoolwork and our jobs and our purpose in life and our friendships and our hobbies and our interests and Lord willing, our marriages. Um, you guys are too young for that, but it's all good. Uh, like, 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 like all of these things can and should be viewed in this way. How does the gospel of Jesus redeem these areas and, and give me direction in these areas and correct my understanding of these areas where I need to be corrected? So when I turn the diamond of the gospel in the light, how does the light dance and shine on every part of my life? 
There, there's no part of your life that's exempt from this. We could really go any direction this semester, any issue, any struggle, any situation. We can tie it all back to the gospel. And so that's going to be our focus going forward. And I really do hope that this makes sense to you so far. Because um, think about it this way, right? If Jesus is the best friend we could ever have, I feel like that's got to change the way we see our friends and deal with our friends, right? And if, or, or like if, if biblical marriage, it, which is a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman following Jesus, if, if, a, if a biblical marriage is really meant to reflect the gospel as a shadow of the relationship between Jesus and the church, then hey, like that's got to change the way we see dating, marriage, what, what we desire for a marriage in the future, and how we treat our spouses. Like I could, again, I could go all day, but I, I hope you see what I'm trying to say here. And another thing before I get into tonight's scripture and pray, it's that I can't emphasize how important gospel fluency is in America for Christians, and especially in the Bay Area, because there are a lot of competing voices and false gospels out there trying to grab your attention every day. And we need to have the true gospel of Jesus and the word of God be the center of our reality for as long as we're here. So that's my overview of gospel fluency. You can come to me later and ask more questions about that. But the first issue, the first question about gospel fluency that we'll tackle is, how does the gospel redefine for us what is truly valuable? And what is worth losing everything to gain? So I'm going to read Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. It's on your handout. Um, made it more convenient for you guys. But uh, yeah, I'll read that. I'm going to, so tonight I'm going to be reading and quoting from the ESV, okay? So Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Pray real quick. Father God, um, give us eyes to see what we cannot see. Give us ears to hear you where we cannot hear. And tune our hearts to sing your grace. Tune our hearts to love you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's four things. Give me your eyes, guys. There's four things that I want you to see in this passage tonight. Okay? Number one. The call of Jesus. Number two, the cost of following Jesus. Number three, the Christ or the Messiah that Jesus is. And number four, the comfort, the comfort that Jesus does offer you when you follow him. All right? So let's get to the first thing, the call, the call of Jesus. I think that if we want to understand the call that Jesus is giving here, we've got to look at the context of the passage. So in Matthew 16... Starting from verse 13, it's not on your sheet, but it's okay. I'll tell you what happens. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi, and he challenges the disciples. He says, like, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah and the other prophets. So, in other words, really important men, but not God. But then he asks them in verse 15, he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, I love Peter. Peter's like that, like one kid in Sunday school who knows all the answers. And he's like, oh, like, let me talk. Let me talk. I love Peter. Peter's that. So, 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 so Peter pipes up. He's like a spokesperson for the group. Peter, Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And like A plus, that's the right answer. He gets it right. And Jesus says these famous words to him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And starting from this point, this kicks off this new phase in Jesus's ministry where Jesus begins to teach his disciples about his mission, that he's going to, he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and die and rise again. And, and this Peter, the same Peter, same Peter, who's a plus answer, right? The same Peter, he hears that and he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, there's no way that, that that's what you actually came for. Jesus, you're wrong. You're the Messiah. That means you didn't come to die. You came to conquer and win and deliver us from the Romans. Because, hey, like dying and suffering, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're wrong, Jesus. But Jesus' response is very telling. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. You are a hindrance to me. That, 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 that Greek word can be also translated as stumbling block. You're a stumbling block to me. As in that attitude that Peter has only serves to get in the way of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And it's such a hindrance because you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. You have to understand that, that, that by the time Jesus arrives on the scene in first century Judea, the Jewish people are not expecting a crucified, weak, and suffering, and dying Messiah. They're anticipating a strong, a conquering king who would deliver them from their earthly oppressors. And their earthly oppressors in this stage are the Roman Empire. And what they fail to understand is that the deliverance that the Messiah brings is, is much it's from a much greater problem than like, oh, we don't have money or, oh, like these Romans are oppressing us. It's much greater than that. The big problem is that they're sinners. They're guilty sinners before God. And so he comes to deliver his people from sin and death. And that's why he must suffer and die for them before conquering death and conquering the grave and rising again and coming again in glory one day to consummate his kingdom. Scripture clearly teaches he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes we are healed. And so when Jesus is saying to Peter, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. He's, here's what he's saying. There's a worldly way of thinking and then there's a godly way of thinking. The worldly way of thinking leaves no room for a suffering Messiah. 
the worldly way of thinking looks at suffering. He's like, oh, suffering sucks. There's never anything that could, good that can come out of that. Worldly thinking avoids suffering at all costs and never associates suffering with victory. Worldly thinking fails to look past what's in front of you, you know, the physical reality. And it prioritizes material and tangible things. But if only we would see the heart of God, if only Peter would see the heart of God behind what Jesus is about to do. He's about to suffer and die and rise again for them. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. He's going to die for them. And so Peter's problem, according to Jesus, is that he's thinking like the world instead of in line with God's way. Which is also Jesus' way. Suffering and death, the way of the cross, is the way of Jesus. And it is in this context, it's in this context that Jesus says what he says in our passage today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in a similar conversation in Luke 14, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this is a question of discipleship. It's a question of who's actually going to follow Jesus. So the call that Jesus gives is to follow him. And if you think about it, this is the ultimate litmus test because... Jesus doesn't want any self-deceiving, false converts. He doesn't want any nominal Christians. There's no fine print with Jesus. He spells out the terms and conditions for everyone to hear. And this is important because people can claim to follow Jesus or want to follow Jesus for any reason. They can follow Jesus expecting money or fame or reputation, personal success. They could treat him as a genie in a bottle. They can follow Jesus because that's what they think they need to do to be a good person. They could follow him to, to feel better about themselves. They could even follow Jesus because they're looking for a community. And that's a huge trap that a lot of people fall into. And it could be anything. If you don't believe me, man, John, go and read John 6. Because in John 6, a bunch of people followed Jesus around because he, they saw him feed a bunch of people bread. And they're like, we want some bread. So they follow him. So if you don't believe me, go read John 6. You can follow Jesus for any reason in the world. And I want to ask you tonight, because, you know, a lot of you here, uh, I honestly haven't seen you in a while, so it's good to see you again. And obviously we have some new friends. Um, I want to ask you tonight, why do you want to follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus at all? But also, why do you want to follow Jesus? Are you looking to get something out of him? Is it money? Reputation, fame, success, good vibes, whatever that means, self-satisfaction. Are you following him because your parents told you to and you're just throwing them a bone? Like, I don't really want to do this, but mom and dad say so, so I'm here. I'm going to follow Jesus, I guess. Is that you? Because if that's why you want to follow Jesus, then I hate to tell you that you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be disappointed by that. Because he never promised you these things. He never promised you these things. And in this life, the only thing he does promise you is suffering and self-denial and death when you follow him. That's the call, guys. If you belong to Jesus, if you wish to follow Jesus, here's what that means. That means you, you die to follow him and you follow him to die. 
The call to Jesus, the call to follow Jesus and Christianity as a nutshell, Christianity is a call to die. And so my title for this message is also my question to you. Are you ready to die? That's going to bring us to point two, the cost. We heard the call. What's the cost? If you're going to answer the call to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. First, look at the vet. Look at the verse. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That means taking your sinful desires, your desires that are in opposition to Jesus, and giving them up to Jesus. It means saying no to those things because you want to say yes to Jesus. It means removing yourself from the throne of your life and allowing the lordship of Jesus and the word of God to to change the desires of your heart, to change your worldview, to, to change your pattern of life. Jesus is now the center of your life. It means loving the things that Jesus loves and hating the things that Jesus hates. It means giving yourself up every day for the sake of the gospel because your life is not your own anymore. And it means offering up your life to Jesus for him to use however he wishes. You're not living for yourself anymore, guys. You're living for Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So first, you're going to have to deny yourself. Next, you're going to have to take up your cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If denying yourself tells us what following Jesus will require, then taking up our own cross and following him tells us the extent to which we must deny ourselves. Because in the first century Judea, understand this, crucifixion is a torture device. It's a method of execution. Taking up a cross in Jesus' day is signing your own death warrant. So it's not just about being willing to give up a few things for Jesus. It's about being willing to give up everything for Jesus. Even the most important things. Even your own life if he asked you to. And this is extreme. This is radical. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is extreme. This is a radical call. But this is not exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. Jesus means what he says. And we know we means, we know he means what he says because we just talked about how Jesus is telling them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And then Jesus says, go follow me. Jesus is walking the road of suffering and death. And he's not satisfied, he's not satisfied with telling his followers like, hey, I'm going to go do this. He also tells them that they're going to have to follow him to death as well. Now picture a giant house in your mind. All right, maybe you guys live in giant houses, so this won't be hard for you. But, but, but picture a giant house in your mind. All right, two floors, a basement, a kitchen, a couple bedrooms, a couple bathrooms, a bunch of closets, the whole nine yards. It's a big house. It's a big house. This house represents your life. Okay? When you follow Jesus, you're essentially turning over the house to Jesus. And he's now your landlord and your tenant. Okay? It's weird, but he's your landlord and your tenant. He owns the house. He lives in the house. He... He, he runs the house. He's going to fix everything in the house. Everything in the house belongs to him. 
He wants everything in your life. He wants everything in that house. And if things are broken in the house, and they are, he's going to fix it. But imagine if you let Jesus stay in the house, right? You give, you give Jesus the house, but then you say, hey, man, you can't use the kitchen. You can't sleep in the master bedroom. Jesus, that's, that closet is my personal space. You're not allowed to use it. You're not allowed in. You can look at the living room, but you're not allowed to touch anything in there. The laundry machine is broken, but you can't fix it. Which kind of, kind of sucks, but whatever. Like, that, that makes no sense, right? Like, if you're going to give the house to Jesus, if you really say that Jesus is going to own this house and live in this house, but then you withhold your closet and your bedroom and your kitchen and your living room because you still believe that they're yours, let me ask you something. Does Jesus really live in that house? Does he really own the house? Or is he an, un- is he an unwelcome guest in the house? Now, when Jesus is your Lord, he wants everything in the house. You've got to be willing to give it all to him. And following Jesus requires denying yourself and saying yes to Jesus, even if it costs you something that you hold dear. Maybe everything else you hold dear. This is a serious charge. It's a, it's a charge that only a Christian can answer. And so, guys, if you're a Christian tonight, if you believe that Jesus lived a perfect life for you and that he died for all of your sins, and that he rose again, he lives today to be your savior, if you believe that who he is and what he has done is all you need to be saved, then listen up. You are saved. You have entered into the kingdom of God as his beloved son or daughter, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, saved by grace and possessing eternal life. This call from Jesus, this call to die, to deny yourself and fall after him, this call awaits you. This is the other side of that door. There are no exceptions. If anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says. So, hey, Christians, you've entered through the gate. You stepped onto the narrow way. This is now your path forward. A life lived in obedience to Christ. A life submitted to his will. A life that grows in love for God and in love for neighbor. A, love that, a, a life that continues to rest in the eternal security of his grace while striving to bear fruit for his glory. That's the design that Jesus has for your walk with him. It's going to be costly. So why would you do it? Why would anyone do it? I was on Instagram the other day and just scrolling through reels. I do this way too much, but um, I came across a reel that asks people an either-or question. Do you ever get those? Like, either-or? Um, but uh, Sam's going to love this because it's about one piece. Um, and, 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 and I got asked this question, like, hey, like, either, either the author of One Piece dies before he finishes the manga, or you die and the author finishes One Piece. Which one do you pick? And I'm just like, like, bro, I'm going to live. Like, I don't care about One Piece. But I'm looking at the comment section, and this, and this is what I see. This is hilarious to me. 100% I'm dying. A worthy sacrifice for the boys. For the greater good, because that, that story needs to be finished at all costs, without hesitation, because one life is nothing compared to one piece. I, I, like, I, I'm not joking. This is what I literally saw. And I know that a lot of these people are joking, right? Like, like haha, like, so funny. But, like, I, I know that they're joking, but I can't help but feel that there's definitely people out there who meant that. Who would actually willingly give their lives if it meant that the One Piece manga could be finished. 
And I think we all know the reason why someone would do that. And that's far from the only example I can give, okay? There's a reason why someone would give up so much for, for, for a Japanese manga. There's a reason why an Argentina soccer fan is more than willing to blow all of their life savings to travel to the World Cup and watch Messi play. There's a reason why American soldiers are willing to storm the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, even though it means certain death. There's a reason why parents in dirt poor countries make sure their children are fed first, even if it means giving up their portion for the day. There's a reason why sacrifices are made every day all around the world. And the reason is this, people sacrifice and give things up for what is truly valuable to them. And here's where the gospel begins to challenge our thinking because it asks us, what is truly valuable? What is actually worth losing everything to gain? Because I'm going to tell you right now, I love Naruto. It's my first anime. I love Naruto. But if it were the choice between my life and watching Naruto, like, I don't need to watch Naruto. I'm, I, I, I'm staying alive, guys. So, so what's actually worth losing everything to gain? And here's the answer that I, I think the gospel gives. Okay, Here's the answer that I think it gives. It comes straight out of the mouth of Jesus. So let's go to verse, verses 25 to 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so please don't miss what Jesus is doing here. The answers to the two rhetorical questions he asks in verse 26, the answers are exactly the same. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer to that is nothing. Nothing. Because you can have everything you've ever wanted. The whole world, every pleasure there is to be sought, every possession there is to be had, every relationship there is to be made. All the money you could ever need, you can have it all. Whatever you want. But if you lose your soul, that is if you die and you're thrown into everlasting hell because you never put your trust in Jesus. If you lose your soul, it doesn't matter how much you've gained in this life because you're not taking with that, you're not taking that with you into eternity. And the second question, and what shall it give, what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer to that is also nothing because there's no amount of money that you could offer God and bribe him to let you out. Like, think about that. There's, there, there's nothing you can give. No money, no material possession, not even a good deed that you ever did. There's nothing you can give or do that's acceptable to God that's going to make him reverse his judgment. You can't buy your way out of heaven. You can't, or you can't buy your way out of hell. You can't work your way out of hell. So you can't, you can't give anything in return for your soul. Your soul is priceless. And it's a tragedy that... that, that this is a tragedy that so many people feel, fail to realize. And so... I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. This is an illustration that Francis Chan originally did. Um, some of you have probably seen this on YouTube, but I have a rope in my hands. See this rope, guys? I have a rope in my hands. And imagine that the end of this rope, so like if you follow the rope, it goes over there. Um, but imagine that the end of that rope, like follow the rope and imagine that it stretches forever. Okay? Like, there's no end. Obviously, it ends. It ends over there. But 
Um, like, 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 imagine that this rope has infinite length. It goes on forever. This rope is like a timeline of your existence. Okay, it's a timeline. And because this rope stretches forever, hey, here's what the Bible says. You're going to live forever. You, you, or you're going to exist forever. You have a soul that will not die. Okay? And so this rope stretches forever. The, the length of the whole rope is eternity, as in forever. And I put a piece of blue tape around the, this end of the rope. You guys see this? Piece of blue tape right here? This represents your life on earth. This is the 60 to 70 years we have on this earth. Compared to the rest of this rope, this is really a blink of an eye. Blink and you'll miss it. And the tragedy is that so many people, and you might be one of them, this might be you. So many people spend all of their time and energy worrying about this blue part. Their whole lives are dedicated to making this blue part be as good as possible and really maximizing this blue part. I got to be comfortable for this blue part. I got to do well for this blue part. I got to feel good for this blue part. That's all they're focused on. I got to maximize this blue part. And they're not focused on the rest of the rope at all. Eternity does not cross their minds. What about all of this? What about all of this? And you'll heap up good grades and extracurriculars and good colleges and good careers and lots of money in the hopes of getting the most out of this blue part. And you're going to completely ignore the things of God which carry an eternal importance. And it's a tragedy because you end up throwing away all of this. You end up throwing away eternity for the sake of this. It's a few short years, guys. In the scope of forever, 70 years is so short. And, and, and you're going to throw all of this away for this? You're 100% going to lose that trade. And just from a glance of this rope, you, you should know how foolish that is. Worrying about this. Throwing away this. So don't be fooled, guys. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21... Do not, lay up, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't waste your life chasing, chasing after things that don't last forever. Don't waste your life doing that. Instead of prioritizing things that actually do matter. What you do here matters because it determines the rest, of, the rest of this. It determines the rest of eternity, what you do here. And what you do matters because, man, there, there, there's something more valuable than the sum of every material possession you could ever have. There's something more valuable than even your life on earth and that is your eternal destiny. The state of your soul and that eternal destiny, heaven or hell, there's no third option. Heaven or hell hinges on the one person whose value far outstrips that of anything else. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the answer. And that isn't just a Sunday school cliche. He is the answer. He is worth more than the whole world put together because he created the world. 
He is the God of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, by whom and in whom all things exist. And his love is the greatest love you will ever know. And his grace is enough to forgive you of all of your sins. His love and his grace drove him to a cruel rugged cross where he laid down his life for sinners like you and like me. But God demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8 and John 3.16. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel tells us that only Jesus Christ, his life, his shed blood, his gift of salvation, only he is truly valuable. And only he is worth everything. He's worth losing everything to gain because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you think you can save your own life? Let me tell you right now, you can't. You're a sinner and you're in desperate need of grace. Do you chase after the things of this world as if your life depended on it? Let me tell you this. The road to hell is paved with the things of this world. But let me ask you a different question now. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the son of God who loves you? Do you, do you follow Jesus because you really do believe that he lived for you and he died for you and he rose again for you to save you from your sins? That Guess what? If you do, then you and only you And only those who believe the same will find true life, eternal life with Jesus. Your soul is safe. The the, the rest of the rope is safe with him. This blue part of the rope might have struggles and hardships here and there. But let me tell you something, guys. Suffering, suffering here, suffering here is okay because you're going to have the rest of eternity to not suffer. And, and you're going to give things up for Jesus. But the rest of this rope is going to be full of joy and peace and rest in the presence of God. Eternal life with Jesus is going to be amazing and full of wonder. Because Jesus is the most valuable treasure that anyone could ever have. So what are you willing to give up for Jesus? Are you ready to die? We live in a country where we likely won't be killed for our faith. All right, we got freedom of religion here. But my question for you this evening, are you ready to die? It's not limited to physical death. Are you ready to follow Jesus if it means giving up everything near and dear to your heart? Are you ready to give things, these things up for his sake, for the sake of the gospel, if he asks you to? You've come to a fork in the road. You can either choose the left way, the wrong way, where nothing is right, Or you can choose the right way and follow Jesus where nothing else is left. Which one will you pick? Are you ready to boldly claim Jesus as your Lord at work? I know you guys aren't working yet, but you're going to eventually. We're all going to get jobs at some point. Are you ready to boldly claim Jesus as your Lord at work? If it means giving up a better job with a better salary and better (laughs) benefits. If it means not denying him. If it means standing up for what is right. And true in the face of what your company might say? Or conducting yourself with integrity instead of playing the work politics game? 
Are you ready to boldly own Jesus as your savior in the classroom and on your college apps if it means giving up your dream school? If it means not being ashamed of Jesus? If it, if it means your peers think that you're a bigot and a fool and a lunatic? If it means looking weird because your hope isn't grounded in grades and test scores? Are you ready to share the gospel with those around you if it means giving up your reputation and potentially losing some friendships along the way? Or saying no to that party or that bottle or that blunt or that boy or that girl if those things don't glorify Jesus or that person doesn't follow Jesus? Are you ready to pick up and move across the city, across the state, across the country, even across the world? And give up your comfort and your stability if Jesus calls you for the sake of his gospel? If Jesus requires you to change your mind, to give something up, to align your will and your heart with his, will you do it? Are you ready to follow Jesus even if it's going to cost you something? So let me tell you about this friend of mine. I'm not going to tell you his real name for security reasons, but... Let's call him Tucker, okay? Tucker grew up in a household that claimed to follow Jesus. They did all the outward stuff, but the heart wasn't there. For him, life was easy to give up on because he didn't have real faith in Jesus. It was easy to lose hope, and his struggles culminated in him trying to commit suicide. But he failed to commit suicide, and he got a second chance at life. And this second chance led him to Jesus, and as Tucker began to see who Jesus was. He saw that there was no person who's more genuine with his love and with his grace than Jesus is. And, and he examined the heart of Jesus and he realized that he, Jesus loved sinners like Tucker. And so Tucker began to follow Jesus because how could he? How could he not follow Jesus if Jesus is like that? And after giving his life to Christ, he. Tucker wanted everyone to know Jesus. And he realized that the best chance someone has at knowing Jesus is if someone loves them with the love of Jesus and shares the gospel with them. And he, he, he begins to think. And then he realizes that his calling was to be a missionary and to dedicate his life towards pursuing people who don't know Jesus. And this calling led him overseas to the Middle East. And that's where he is right now. He's in the Middle East right now. So once Tucker figured out what it meant for him to give up his life for Jesus, disobedience was not an option. But obedience was also costly. Obedience was costly. So let me tell you what it cost him, okay? He turned down a full ride to Purdue and a job in the chemical industry to become an overseas missionary. Let me just tell you right now, overseas missionaries, their pay is not great. When he told his dad that he was going to the Middle East, his dad told him to not come home before he left. Don't come home. Eventually, his dad, accepted, his dad accepted it, but Tucker was ready to give up his family to follow Jesus. He traded friends and a solid Christian community in America for a path of loneliness and suffering and life in a land with very few Christians. A life as a believer in a land where most people did not want him there. And everything could be taken away in an instant. And even though he's been overseas for six years, 
he has not seen someone come to faith in Jesus. So he's been evangelizing people for six years in the Middle East. Nobody's come to faith. And I spoke to him on the phone a month ago, and he still believes it's worth it. Despite despair and loneliness and suffering that he has to endure for the sake of the gospel, Tucker genuinely feels like he has only gained. And here's the thing that Tucker told me. Here's what he realized. His whole Christian life has already been full of sacrifice and giving things up for Jesus, starting with the day he laid down his old life and traded it for Jesus. And he knows that any sacrifice he could make going forward as a Christian, it's nothing compared to the day he trusted Jesus and gave up his life and gave up his heart. It's nothing compared to that. And he told me about this other believer over there. Let's call her Haley. Haley's not a real name. Let's call her Haley. Haley is a Sudanese girl who wrestled with the gospel for seven years before putting her faith in Jesus. And she lives in the Middle East right now. None of her family knows she's a Christian, but they're starting to suspect. And if they find out, it will cost her everything. Haley has given up so much already to follow Jesus. She's given up her jobs. She reads her Bible in secret. But if her family finds out she's a Christian, they will send her back to Sudan. That's a country that's torn apart by war right now. They're going to send her back to Sudan as, as a punishment. And so following Jesus literally means life or death for Haley. I want to ask you tonight, what does it mean for you? And I want to tell you, like, you don't have to be exactly like Tucker or exactly like Haley. I have a friend named Josh, not him. Um, I have a friend named Josh who's following Jesus in Chicago. Chicago's a big city, beautiful city. Lots of business there, lots of good food. People can live comfortably in Chicago. He's following Jesus in Chicago, and right now, here's what that looks like for him. He's working a corporate job. He's serving faithfully at his local church. He just accepted a CFO position that he'll start in the coming months. Here's also what following Jesus looks like for him. Pursuing intentional relationships while owning Jesus at work. Initiating spiritual conversations. Bringing the gospel of Jesus to the executive level of the corporate world. And if you know, if you have any concept of what that's like, that's very hard. But as someone who went on summer mission with Josh two years ago, I know that he is very good at owning Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And this new opportunity that Josh has is 100% Jesus' call for him to go to people we can never reach. Like, who's talking to a CFO in this room right now? Nobody, right? Unless he's your dad. Um, but like, Josh is going to people that we can never reach. And we, he's going to them with the light of the gospel. So when I look at Tucker and Haley and Josh, here's what I see in all three of them. They're not fitting Jesus into their lives. <clears throat> Let me say that again. They're not fitting Jesus into their lives. They're not treating Jesus as just another part of their life. Something that you can just add on to their already busy schedule. Someone who they need to fit into their plans. But do you know what I see when I look at those three? They're not fitting Jesus into their lives, but instead Jesus is fitting them into his plan. He's leading them on his terms, not theirs. Jesus is not an add-on to these people. 
Jesus is their Lord and their master and their king. And all their time, all their talents, all their dreams, all of them belong to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who dictates how he's going to use these things. They don't dictate their own Christian walk. They listen for the call of Jesus on their hearts and they obey and they follow him. So you don't have to do exactly what they do. But what you do have to understand is that when you follow Jesus, you don't get to pick and choose what you're going to have to sacrifice. What you're going to give up. You don't get to choose that. That's up to Jesus to decide. Do you ever notice how Jesus never gives people friendly suggestions in the Bible? He never goes like, hey man, you know, I think you should probably do this. Obeying me is completely optional. But I figured that I suggest that you do this. He doesn't do that. Because Jesus is Lord. All authority on heaven and on earth belongs to him. And he doesn't give suggestions, he gives commands. He says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So if his commandments in your ways come into conflict, you're the one that has to change. Because his ways are perfect. If he commands you to give up something for his sake, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him, then you're going to have to do that if you want to be obedient to him. If you read the Bible, which is the word of God, which is Jesus' word, if you read the Bible and you read something that you disagree with, he's not the one that's going to have to change his mind. You are. He's God. And that's something that That's got to sink in real quick in order for you to understand this. Jesus is is the God of the universe. So don't you think disagreeing with him says more about you than it does about him? He's the truth of God. And if you knew that, you'd think twice before calling him a liar or saying to him, yeah, I'm I'm not quite on board with this. Going back into the world of manga for a sec, Sam's not here anymore, but... um, He's going to miss out, but going back into the world of manga, my roommate Ethan and I were having this conversation about Naruto last week, and we're giving our entire roommate squad, like, we're assigning character, uh, character comparisons, which is a normal conversation that my friends and I have. Um, so we're comparing our roommates to Naruto characters, and we figured out pretty quickly that it's really hard to compare people to Naruto himself. And if you haven't read Naruto, if you don't watch the anime at least, like, I'm sorry, you're kind of late. You were very late. So I don't, I don't mind spoiling with this for you guys. Um, it's hard to compare. It's, it's hard to compare people to Naruto because he's, he's such a unique character. He's a static character. What that means is that he doesn't really change. And the most compelling thing about Naruto is that Number one, he doesn't change. And number two, when everyone else encounters him, he changes them. And sometimes he needs to beat the mess out of them first. But everyone who meets Naruto changes because of him. And a lot of villains end up changing their worldviews as a result. And in case you were wondering how this at all connects to my point, when you encounter Jesus and you're confronted with the reality of the gospel... It's not Jesus who has to change and try to fit himself into your life. Jesus is not the one who's going to have to give everything up to fit your your preferences. And when he calls you to follow him, you're the one 
You're the one who's going to have to give up something. You're the one who's going to have to change your worldview. He's the one who sets the terms and conditions for what you need to give up in order to follow him. And you can't pick and choose which one to follow through on or which ones to skip out on. That's not how biblical obedience works. That's not how denying yourself and taking up your cross works because the whole point of denying yourself is saying no to all that stuff Jesus asked. Or he, he, it's saying no to all that stuff if Jesus asks you to give it up. It's admitting that if you and Jesus disagree, you're wrong. And then changing your mind to reflect what the word of God says. Because Jesus doesn't want to simply give you the desires of your heart. He wants to reorient and change the desires of your heart around the things of God to help you see that ultimately what you're really after can only be found in Jesus. So are you ready to die? Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to follow Jesus? It's going to cost you something. Let me be clear though. I've been talking all night about you know, suffering and sacrifice and even death, but don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about pointless suffering, okay? I'm not teaching you that you need to go home and brainstorm all the ways you could suffer more because suffering itself is such a good thing. That's not what I'm teaching you. And, and Tucker loves to say this to me. Tucker loves to say, there's a difference between martyrdom and dying dumb. A lot of people die really dumb. It's different than martyrdom. And so you can suffer a lot and still refuse to follow Christ and miss the whole point of what I'm saying, okay? The suffering that Jesus is calling us to is not pointless. It isn't for the sake of suffering itself, but Jesus calls us to suffer for him, for his sake. And the suffering he calls us to isn't just for him, but it's also rooted in his example. It's rooted in the sufferings of Jesus because if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's suffering for Jesus modeled the way that Jesus modeled for us. So what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? That's point three. What kind of Christ is Jesus? Because our suffering needs to be for Jesus and it needs to follow the example of suffering that he set. So how does Jesus suffer? Paul says this in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind amongst yourselves. That's us. Yourself is us. He's writing to us. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. <coughs> See, Jesus is God. Let us think again, guys. Jesus is God. But God is Trinitarian, which means that he exists one being, because there's only one God. So the Trinity is God exists in one being and three persons. Okay? So Jesus is the Son of God, and the other two persons of the Trinity are God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as the Son of God, willingly submitted to his Heavenly Father in perfect obedience. He didn't count it robbery to be equal to God or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which is, means 
held onto tightly or even taken advantage of. He didn't do that because he didn't feel the need to grasp it. He already was God. And Jesus, despite dwelling in a heavenly glory from eternity past, he humbled himself and he left his throne, he left his Father's side in heaven to come to earth. And, and this is the point I'm trying to make here. Because our suffering needs to be modeled the way Jesus suffered. You want to talk about giving up everything for the sake of obedience? Jesus Christ humbled himself. God humbled himself and added humanity to his deity. He gave up all of his divine privileges, not his divine identity, he's still God, but he gave up all of his privileges to take on human flesh. The God of the universe stooped so low, instead of appearing in glory, like, like he could just come like, like bright, shining, like, yeah, man, I'm powerful. He didn't do that. He was born as a baby. He traded a throne for a manger. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. But he left heaven to come to earth and live under the authority of the Roman Empire. This is God we're talking about. He lived a humble life. The son of a carpenter. The poor preacher. Jesus says in Matthew eight twenty, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have somewhere to sleep. Slept, slept outside. And even though he did not sin, he was the only man who did not deserve to die. And yet he went to the cross and he paid for all of our sins. And he died a brutal death. Nails in his hands and feet. A crown of thorns on his head. A back ripped apart by whips. That's how Jesus suffered. You have to understand that this is all part of God's plan. This is what it meant for Jesus to obey his father in heaven. Because before time began, God had worked out one plan of salvation. And so the father sets apart a group of people for the son to save. And the son saves them by dying for their sins and rising again. And the spirit gives them new life and dwells in them. So that's how three persons of the Trinity work to save us. That has always been the plan. And Jesus carried out his part of the plan perfectly. Everything he did from his birth to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, was perfectly in sync with the other two persons of the Trinity. It was perfectly in line with the Father's plan. And there was no trace of disobedience or resistance on his part. And that's why Jesus is the only person who was qualified to save us. He obeyed the Father's commands perfectly. He never sinned. And therefore, he's the only one who's qualified to pay the penalty for our sins because he didn't have to pay for his own. This is why it's so important for Jesus to obey the Father. And in the gospel, we see the obedience of Jesus. We see the suffering of Jesus. And our takeaway should be that his suffering is not pointless. His sacrifice is not empty. He suffered because he loved the Father and desired to be obedient to the Father. He suffered because it would bring God glory, but he also suffered because he loves his people. And he willingly took on suffering and traded his life for ours because the reward for our sal- the, the, the reward for Jesus in his obedience was our salvation from eternal damnation in hell. His reward is us, despite how broken and, and sinful we are. He came to save us and redeem us for himself. 
And so we suffer for the sake of Jesus because he suffered much more for us. And we suffer like Jesus because we want to be obedient and follow our Lord. We want to be like Jesus. So, so, so Jesus suffers for obedience. But let's imagine this, all right? Imagine this scene in your heads. Before Jesus comes to earth, he and the Father have this conversation in heaven. This is not real. This is imagination, okay? Let's say he, he and the Father have a conversation. And the Father says, you know, son, you're going to become the savior of the world. You ready? Like, you're, like you're about to go. You're, gonna be out, you're, you're about to become a man and become the savior. Are you ready? And Jesus is like, yeah, like, let's do this. Jesus is like, of course I'm ready. Been waiting a long time to do this. But then let's say Jesus says, but I also have some conditions. I don't want to be born as a baby. That's too humiliating for me. Can I just skip to being a 30-year-old man? I don't want to have to grow up and learn obedience. And my parents are flawed, man. I'm sinless. Do I really need to live under their authority? And do I have to go right now? Do I have to go right now? How about we delay this 2,000 years? And you can send me in 2023. Because you and I both know that there will be much better technology then. And dad, I can, re- I-, I can reach so many more people because I can hop on a plane and go anywhere. And medicine and living conditions are much better, so I want to suffer as much. Can you imagine if he said that? Or how about this? That stable in Bethlehem. Do I really got to be born there? You know, you know how nasty? You know how nasty that is? I'd rather have a nice place. A nice place with, with the best doctors. And a nice, nice cradle for me to sleep, to sleep in. I don't want to grow up in Nazareth, man. Dad, you and, uh, you and I both know that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Send me to Rome. Send me to Jerusalem. Send me to a big city. In fact, you can send me to 2023. Send me to Chicago. And, and, and my disciples, can't you pick out some better dudes to follow me? Can I get some followers who actually understand what I'm trying to teach them? I want better friends. I want friends who won't reject me and betray me. And that cross, I want an easier death, man. Like, I, I, don't, I, want, I want to die and, 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 not, and not suffer as much. I don't want to hurt that much. Like, imagine if he said these things. That's ridiculous, right? It's not obedience. It's not true obedience. That's conditional. Hey, man. Hey, God, I'll follow you as long as you give me some concessions. But he didn't say these things. Here's what he did and said. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He made himself meek, humble, gentle, lowly. He had all the rights and privileges in the world. He is the son of God. He had every right and privilege in the world, but he gave it all up to become nothing. And he went to a cross. He was mocked, spat on, beaten, ridiculed, pierced. And the sinless son of God took all of our sins upon himself. And the full wrath of God the Father was poured out on him 
And Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him, to make his soul an offering for sin. He was crushed. He was afflicted. He was crucified in our place so we could walk free. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. And if the call is to die with him, if the cost is everything, and if Christ is our example, then there is a lot of comfort to be, to be found here. And this is point number four, the comfort that we can find. You've talked a lot about suffering tonight, but I'm going to give you some comfort, okay? First point of comfort. Even if the call is to die, true life is found in Jesus. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We can talk, about, we can talk all about what we lose, but what about our gain? What is there to gain from the Christian life, from walking with Jesus, from following Jesus to the cross? If you die, if you give up your old life and repent and trust in Jesus to save you, then you will find true life. Not the 60 to 70 years kind of stuff. Not, not the blue part of the road. Eternal life. And this is eternal life. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And John three sixteen, Whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. You get true life in following Jesus. Because true life is found in Jesus. 1 John 5, verses 11, 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Eternal life is found in Jesus. He is the treasure that, that moth and rust cannot destroy and which thieves cannot steal. He is worth more than the whole universe put together. The reason why there is everything to gain in following <coughs> Jesus is because you get Jesus. And Peter and the disciples needed to be taught that lesson in our passage today. Some of you might need to be taught that lesson as well. And although Peter didn't get it initially, Peter's a pretty clueless guy. Peter didn't get it initially. He ended up denying Jesus three times. But he eventually got it. They all eventually got it. And for the sake and the advancement of the gospel, many of them willingly laid down their lives. They picked up their crosses and they followed Jesus. And they gave their lives to bring the good news of the gospel to the world. And Jesus kept his promise. Kept his promise to Peter. On this rock, which I believe is Peter's confession. It's the truth of the gospel. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gospel continues to advance today. And Christians everywhere are still counting the cost and offering up their lives to Jesus for the sake of the kingdom of God. So Peter got it. And for Peter, picking up his cross and following Jesus meant dying for his faith. He was crucified as well. He literally followed Jesus to the cross. And he was crucified upside down because he did not think himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And this is what Peter wrote. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. This is what he wrote in one of his letters about suffering as a Christian. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right. Second source of comfort. Suffering and hardship, and yes, even persecution, should it come. It might happen. Some things will happen. But at the end of the day, we do know who wins. Verses 27 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm wondering if you heard that. Jesus is going to come with angels and in the Father's glory. And he shares in the glory of God because he is God. And those angels, those are his angels. They're his to command. And he's the one who will judge the earth on the last day. He comes again in victory and not defeat. And we'll get to live in eternal joy and peace and harmony with Jesus. Because if he wins, then we share that victory. And he does win. And he will come again. Remember that Philippians 2 passage that we read through about how Jesus suffered and was obedient? Do you guys know how that ends? Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's how it ends. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus wins. He's the king of glory. He's worthy of our worship. He's he is what is truly valuable. He is worth losing everything to gain. And if we're united with him by faith, then we'll be with him forever. And that's the promise that he has for us. Okay? Now to close, uh, I'm going to address two groups of people in the room. Okay? First, uh, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not saved, if you're not following Jesus right now, I'm going to talk to you guys first. Um, I don't know how much of my message you heard. I don't know how much of my message you actually understand. So let me, let, me, let, let me address you guys right now, okay? Your call from Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel. Put your trust in Jesus. All right? 
His love is the greatest love you will ever know. His grace is greater than your sin. He says, come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For, 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 for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. That's your first step. We can talk about the cost. We can talk about all of those things. And you should consider that. But at the end of the day, let me tell you, Jesus is worth following. Put your trust in Jesus. For believers in the room, if you are Christian, you are following Jesus. Um, Let me tell you that your suffering will not earn you heaven. Your suffering will not earn you heaven. This isn't about who can suffer the most for the sake of Jesus. This isn't about who's the better Christian. It's not about that. This is about obedience, bearing fruit, and looking to the cross all day, every day. Because the gospel is very clear, you are not saved by your works. You're saved by faith in Jesus. And so, never ever treat suffering for Jesus as, as some way to make yourself a better person. Make yourself a better Christian. Be, 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 and, and just be better than people. Don't look at it like that, okay? Your suffering doesn't earn you anything. Salvation-wise, okay? Your suffering does not get you into heaven. Jesus gets you into heaven. But let me also tell you this. Another application is that you should count the cost. You should ask Jesus, hey, how should I, how should I follow you? What do you want me to give up? What are you calling me to? You should ask Jesus that. Because while suffering doesn't get us into heaven, suffering is the marker of a life that submits to Jesus. And so let me challenge you that way. Okay. All right. uh, I'm going to pray to close. And then what time is it? Nine what? 9.30? We do not have time for discussion. Okay, I'll just close. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you. Sorry I went over time. Um, but, Lord, uh, Lord, we need you so bad. Um, and, Lord, we've constantly got our eyes fixed on, fixed on earthly things. We've got our eyes fixed on this short life that we have on earth instead of wondering what the things of God are in eternity. And so help us to have an eternal perspective. Give us eyes to see Jesus as who he truly is, the greatest treasure we could ever have, the greatest love we could ever know, the greatest grace we could ever experience. Help us to know Jesus better. If there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who isn't following you, who is not saved, Lord, I pray that you would do more than my words could ever do and that you would 
change their hearts, that, that you would open their eyes to see who Jesus is, and that they would follow after you. And that's only possible because of your grace. And so we ask, Lord, that as we go forth and, and think about the questions on the sheet and, and really examine our lives, that, that you would call us to repentance and faith and obedience, all the while knowing that our obedience does not save, but your blood shed on the cross, that's what saves us. And so we thank you for that gift. Thank you for suffering for us and help us now to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. I'm sorry I went over time. Normally, I, I prepared a second question, but clearly we're not going to do that.